welcome to the pod, people, and they're everywhere! I'm back! I'm uh, Matisse Van Rossum, and I'm bugging out! I'm Cleveland Mosier, and, uh, do you hear that sound overhead? I think it's fans. It's the government, man. I'm Ben Sheets, but we gotta, we gotta keep them from watching us. We gotta prevent the fan uprising. Fans, helicopters, what's the difference? Is there? No. Oh, okay. We're talking about Bug. Bug, bug, bug. Yeah. Uh, this is Ben's pick, the 2006 film by William Friedkin. Um, and uh, that's all I'll say. Ben, why don't you uh, give us an introduction yeah. to William Friedkin, the great William Friedkin and Bug. Yeah, let's yeah. take this fucker off. So William Friedkin is one of the classic new Hollywood directors, directed some of my personal favorite movies like The Exorcist, Sorcerer, The French Connection... He is definitely known for The Exorcist, most likely. One of which the most is, famous horror films yes, of all time. Yes, one of the most famous horror movies of all time. But what's interesting about his career is, despite that, he's only done two or three horror movies, including The Exorcist. Outside of The Exorcist, this is one of them. Bug is a 2006 horror movie uh, based on a stage play by Tracy Letts. Does the play have the same name? Is it, is I believe so. I, okay. I believe it's also called Bug. Tracy Letts uh, continued collaboration with William Friedkin after this on to the excellent Killer Joe, which is more of a black comedy than this. Tracy Letts is a pretty well-known, well-regarded playwright. He did things like August Osage County, oh, um, okay. as well as uh, plenty of others. I can't say I'm super well versed in uh, in stage theater. This movie is about kind of a lonely girl played by Ash- Ashley Judd, who uh, just finds out that her abusive ex boyfriend uh, just got out of prison. She works at kind of a grimy, shitty lesbian bar in Oklahoma. In Oklahoma, one day her one of her friends brings over this really weird guy. She becomes good friends with him. He uh, starts saying crazier and crazier stuff and acting stranger and stranger, and she uh, goes along with it because she doesn't want to be alone. The bond kind of builds between them. That pretty well uh, sums up the basic plot. Um, you did forget to mention that she lives in like uh, like a motel. Yeah, she lives like on the side in of a the very isolated in, uh, motel, in the middle of nowhere, bumfuck Oklahoma. It's a very grimy location. The set design was pretty good. Honestly. Yeah, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty uh, good looking motel room. I I think it does a, a really good job setting up like the sense of isolation at the beginning, like with that long helicopter shot coming in of just like the planes and then zooming in on this like tiny little rinky dink motel where she lives alone. So it's like she is completely isolated and like closed in on herself and i think that does a good job to set up her character and why she is so eager to become close to michael shannon's character because like you said she's really lonely so having the setting very much reflect her sense of loneliness makes it a lot easier to understand why she lets in this like really weird dude and just like lets him start living at the motel with her 
Yeah, and I think they do a really good job of unpacking the character and kind of expanding on some of the reasonings throughout the movie. She is plagued by these phone calls right at the beginning of the movie where someone's just calling her, not saying anything on the phone. Yeah, and it's and nice, just, too, because it's during that like that same like uh, lead-in helicopter shot with the title sequence. So you get yeah. like, the phone ringing, no one answering. She calls it like, hello, and no one answers, and she just hangs up immediately. And it's really, it's kind of jarring, and yeah, it really brings home that sense of isolation. Yeah, and it, it also plays into the themes of surveillance really well. Yeah, um, because, that's what I was going to say. you know, they're listening and whatnot. Uh, this movie definitely veers into kind of the mindset of conspiracy. I wouldn't say the film itself is conspiracy driven no i i would agree and that that's actually one of the things i like about it same because you would expect the the film to be about like there is some sort of like conspiracy but we never get any evidence of that it's always just michael shannon and ashley judd talking about them being watched and the government having like implanted bugs like in their bodies and shit like that and but you never actually see any of it. You know, you never see the bugs that are quote unquote infesting them. When the doctor shows up at one point who uh, Michael Shannon claims was like the army doctor who experimented on him when he was in the military. Like we never actually know who that dude is just that he is a doctor. We know who Michael Shannon thinks he is. But we don't actually know who he is. Yeah, like, it's cool, because, like, he has, like, some information on, um, what's the, what's her name? Uh, the... Ashley Judd? Yeah, like, she has, he has some information on her that he shouldn't have, so there's still this degree, but it's possible he could have gained that information from other means, like, it's still all within, like, a a, a degree of an ambiguity. The film is beautifully ambiguous. If you recall, her her ex-husband was the one who brought him to the motel. Who would have known those things, exactly. Yeah, who would have given him that information and like how she she thinks that you know that it's her husband making those calls where he just doesn't say anything and just breathes on the line and he says that he hasn't been calling her at all so it's like so it's like well is he just a liar because he's proven himself to be a scumbag or is the government watching and listening you know so i i really appreciate that ambiguity that it's like you said, Ben, you, I think you summed it up really well. It's about the mindset of conspiracy and not about conspiracy itself. Yeah, I think Friedkin does a really great job giving us some distance between buying the conspiracies of the movie. We feel for the characters, but never once do we feel like the conspiracies are necessarily completely legitimate. No, yeah, I don't think so. I, I at least just felt like they, like, Michael Shannon certainly was crazy, and that, like, being so confined with his craziness made Ashley Judd crazy, that, mm-hmm. that they that they sort of developed a shared psychosis. Yeah. I, I never got the impression that 
anything that they were saying was legitimate. Which is cool, like, it, um... But it's all, but it's, they also don't explicitly tell you that it's not. Right, because... So I, I do appreciate that. Yeah, because it I is revealed that, that Shannon's character is, like, ex-military and, like, yeah. something was going on. So, like, you know, potentially, like, something could have happened, whether it's to the degree he says it is or it's not at all, whether he just has PTSD and that's made him a paranoid. <laughs> well, the, I mean, the, I the mean... The doctor said that he was schizophrenic. The doctor tells Ashley Judd that Michael Shannon is straight up schizophrenic i mean having the delusion of bugs, of bugs is yeah. a typical schizophrenic tendency mm-hmm. um but i will say visually they do kind of separate the reality of what's happening with the psychosis you get it especially in the motel scene which we'll expand on plenty sure. but when uh they push the bed up against the uh, door and everything's like wildly shaking in the room and uh you know everything is getting thrown uh from side to side and then we get a shot from outside of the room <laughs> where it's just completely still. still you know like well yeah they do they do that a couple of times where they they both seem to have this shared hallucination of like helicopters like surrounding them like you hear the helicopter and there's the wind and the light and it's like an earthquake and everything is shaking that happens like two or three times in the movie but then there is that one time where like it just cuts it cuts to uh I think her husband outside and everything is just like completely calm and quiet. Like there's nothing. So that in, in that sense, like that is very much a, a, a hallucination on, on their part. Definitely. Um, which I think is why it leans a little bit more towards like these people are just crazy. But I, I think it's like the interesting thing is like you can buy Michael Shannon being a schizophrenic, but the fact that just by spending time with Ashley Judd, that she sort of like takes on his his illness you know at the same time like their shared psychosis is what i think makes the film really the most interesting that dynamic because that isn't really explained and i i haven't studied that a whole lot so i don't know it's a real thing like like what well yeah i know it's i know it's a real thing but i don't know like details about how that kind of thing develops and to what extent the psychosis is shared between you know multiple people so i can't say but i i do think that that is is the probably the most interesting aspect of those characters dynamic in the film that was one of the things that i i liked the best um i was not surprised to learn that this was an adaptation of a stage play or it's almost entirely very talky dialogue driven it's Except for, like, really, like, the the couple of times that we see Ashley Judd out of her room, like, the one scene where she's at work and then the, the scene where she's at the grocery store. Other than that, like, it's pretty much all in this single location in the hotel room. Mm-hmm. Which um, I, I think makes it feel very claustrophobic. Yeah, totally. Um, in a great way. One of the things I wanted to talk about a little bit with that shared psychosis, though, going back to that a little bit is it kind of expands on the idea of kind of viruses of thought which i've always thought is an awesome concept in film oh yeah Uh, that's one of the cool things about the title like i mean bug is multifaceted there's you know being bugged and then also the literal literal bugs, bugs and then like a virus like a mind virus 
Yeah, yeah. It's like a it's like a mind parasite in a way. Something that you um, catch, you know, catch the bug. Yeah. Like the last movie I saw that really plays on viruses of speech and thought like that was like Pawnee Pool, which does a great job in more of a zombie setting playing off of those ideas but this one really expands on susceptibility to that stuff and more in an authentic way i think which is really interesting and honestly really kind of viscerally disturbing to me um, because it's so grounded in reality seeing their their collective degradation is uh yeah is i it's pretty visceral um Especially in stuff like where Michael Shannon thinks that the queen bug or the egg sac or whatever is has been placed in his tooth because he got a filling when he was oh, in the yeah. army. So he thinks that they, they put the bugs inside his tooth. Um, so he just like gets a pair of needle nose pliers and just like rips his tooth out. That scene was particularly disturbing. I I always have problems with like seeing people pull their teeth out. That's one of those things in uh in in horror movies that always gives me the heebly jeeblies and this scene is is I think particularly The way it was shot it, yeah. too is just so viscerally disturbing. Yeah, the yeah. tension build to that sequence is great too. Like this you you or great tooth. You, you see like Shannon like kind of playing with a lot and commenting on it and it yeah. and it starts out as just like minor little like just him like fucking with his jaw before you even know. Like he's just sort of massaging his cheek. Um, and it's it's subtle enough at the beginning, and it it builds up nicely. There are probably a few moments where I didn't even notice. And I and I like that too because at that point in the film, like Ashley Judd still is not convinced of anything he's saying. You know, she hasn't gone like full full blown uh, crazy yet. Mm-hmm. So at that point, like he's totally losing his mind and ripping his tooth out, and she's just like screaming, like "What the fuck are you doing?" Yeah. Um. That. So I think that. That's really great, but it is kind of after that point where she really starts to go downhill. Yeah, I, I did. I did feel it was a little interesting that, um, like, she sort of goes like from one sequence to the next, like being like, "Oh, what the fuck are you doing? What's going on?" And then, relative, like the next scene over or so, like she's sort of going along with it fully. Like, I, I didn't feel like I got like her internal like. I mean, I think tipping point. I think she buys it a little before that with the scene where. Her friend comes over because that's before yeah. he pulls his tooth out. You know, she's kind of explaining this to him, uh, to her friend, and her friend is like, "This is crazy. You can't be actually believing this." And there's a certain point where she says, "You know, she's talked to Michael Shannon's doctor. She threatens to uh, tell the doctor where Michael Shannon is." And she freaks out because she doesn't want to lose him. Yeah. You the, know, the the friend tells about it yeah. makes the threat about the doctor, yeah. and then Judd, yeah, freaks out. Well, I mean, we we see that she clearly has some serious abandonment issues, and that she's extremely lonely. So even though Michael Shannon is is not necessarily a, a positive influence in her life, he's still better than nothing. I mean, we see that she's she's been quote unquote abandoned a lot anyway. Like her husband is abusive, and then he and he goes off to jail. You know, her son was kidnapped or something. Her son disappeared at this at the supermarket. Yeah, like that's, that's the a greatest big, character aspect for sure. Yeah, that um, and and she doesn't know what happened to him, which I think is another uh 
great element playing into the idea of conspiracy is just like all she can do is speculate on what happened to her son because like they never discovered anything like he was just there and then he wasn't you know maybe the government took him or something uh it plays into that that feeling of grief with judd's character really well too right like even throughout the movie she just is kind of passively grieving about it right a lot of ways and searching for a means of escapism which is a big part uh one thing we haven't really mentioned too much is uh also that her and michael shannon both do a whole lot of drugs during the the course of the film like and which presents another aspect of ambiguity yeah well Um, they start out with them doing like some coke she's constantly she's constantly drinking too Mm -hmm. like we see a couple of times her like get up first thing in the morning and like immediately pour herself like a vodka coke or something Mm -hmm. michael shannon doesn't really like when he first shows up like when her friend brings him over like he doesn't drink like they're they're like sitting around drinking and like doing coke and smoking weed and shit and like michael shannon's not really doing any of it which is cool because eventually he does and so that sort of plays off that same theme like of of you know being influenced by other people and catching that bug and also, just like it, it makes sense that if he if he is a schizophrenic, like if that's to be believed, that right. like mind altering substances like that set people off. Set set people off. Um, apparently, particularly weed has has a, a bad uh, influence on on people who suffer from schizophrenia. Um, so like that's kind of when he sort of does relent and start like indulging in in some substances it's also sort of like when he starts to to really go overboard with with his delusions and stuff like that his quote-unquote delusions we don't know he might he might be uh completely justified for all we know um but it sure doesn't seem like it does it Mm. well yeah that's one of the fun things too when uh we first see him looking for bugs after the two have sex on the bed He's trying to pick these bugs, and you literally can't see them. Yeah, well, she can't see them either, like, to the point that he's, she's like, where? And he's like, right there. And he, like, picks up the bedside lamp and, like, holds it right next to the sheet, and he's like, right there, and she still can't see it. And then eventually she does start seeing them, but then the friend comes over and and doesn't see them, you know? Despite the fact that both she and Michael Shannon have, like, really nasty nasty bites all over them you know or rashes and wounds and stuff i guess right. you could from them picking at themselves right which is likely what it is yeah. is that they think that there's bugs so they pick at their skin again quite common um, among like meth addicts and such yeah so uh well we never really see them doing anything harder than mm-hmm. uh cocaine well except in that last scene where she's just got a crack pipe yeah um that the doctor inexplicably hit yeah that, that. That, that was really funny yeah. it's like is she he's like can i have a drink and she's like no and he just sees the crack pipe he's like can i hit this <laughs> uh no really fun stuff uh and the cool thing too about like them not being able to see the bugs like it it plays up nicely because they also get a microscope as well which i love we don't see they just like it, it well, cuts yeah, back they never... to the, like the next sequence and they just have the microscope there yeah. and they're trying to look through stuff but like it's an old school microscope and it can be really easy to to just see like like the wrong thing I in think, there. It I looks like a kid's a microscope. Yeah. yeah. I think it is a child's microscope because she has 
a bunch of uh, her missing son's toys and stuff, and Michael Shannon was the one who got the microscope out, and we see all the toys scattered around, and Ashley Judd's friend even says, like, uh, she's when she gets back, she's not going to like that you've gotten all these toys. No, it was out, it so. was her I, ex-husband that said that. Oh, that's right. That yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's 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 a child's microscope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's fun because you never like, see the bugs. Yeah. yeah, there's still a degree of ambiguity. They maybe they were seeing like some sort of small bugs. Oh, I remember what I, where I was going with that. Uh, it's one of my my uh, one of the fun little pieces of dialogue is I think it's the first time she does see quotes one of the bugs. Uh, she says something along the lines of like, "Well, why, why would there be any bugs here?" And it's like, "Lady, you're you're in a shitty like yeah, long stay like, motel. Like motel. there there are mites and bugs crawling everywhere. So even if they are seeing bugs, it's likely they're just mites or you know whatever else." And they keep like some of the there's some fun dialogue about aphids. What I like about the microscope thing too is that like. We we see like Michael Shannon like pricking himself and like taking his blood, and he's saying that like the bugs are in his blood, that they're like living inside him, which is almost certainly a paranoid delusion. Yeah. Uh, there's that turning point where like he has the the microscope out, but also they've already like started like bug proofing the room was just like the the fly paper hanging all over the place, hanging from the ceiling fans, I just spinning around. I don't know what good that's gonna do. <laughs> for crawling bugs but you know it's a cool visual motif um and it's also just starting to show like the degradation of of their sanity but man like the 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 best part of the movie is when it gets into the third act and they go like full nutso and like coat the room in aluminum foil and plastic and hang up just like dozens of those like electric bug zappers it's all the blue lighting yeah Yeah, that well that's that's Um, my favorite part of the movie for a lot of reasons but also like the aesthetic looks great it's awesome well yeah we should we should talk about a couple things before we get into that whole third act because you know the third act is so strong that I don't know if we can follow that in a lot of ways. Uh, One of the things I do want to talk about a little bit is how great Michael Shannon is in this movie. Like, he has such a presence. You know, we see him start out as kind of just a weirdo. He's introduced to the movie because when he's brought over to Ashley Judd's um, room... He is using the bathroom, and she jokes about him being an axe murderer or something. And the first lines we get from him is him just saying multiple times, I'm not an axe murderer. (laughs) They do such a great job of building the safety but offbeatness of his character and just throwing it down the rabbit hole into the arc of madness yeah. and throwing like you along with it which is what i particularly liked about it like you do you do sort of feel like you're strapped in for the ride and uh brought along on their paranoia uh and again thanks to the ambiguity and michael shannon just has kind of that this sounds weird but kind of a disturbing face in a way well i mean like it it's it's a hallmark of his career i mean he's almost exclusively played villains after this role which yeah. i think plays in a little negatively like looking back at the film like if i'd watched this and i wonder how it would have felt like if i watched this when it came out in 2006 if i would have felt the same way i think i would have because again like he's he's just kind of got that face um, which is, I mean, helped make his career. So I, I see it as a positive. And he, he plays villains incredibly well. I love, uh, I, I, 
I've loved almost all of the roles he's played. Well, it's interesting because this was his breakout role, we should mention. You know, yeah. he did the stage play version of this with Tracy Letts for about a decade before this. He had some minor movie roles before this. He was in like Bad Boys 2 and stuff like that. But this was his real breakout role. The thing about it is it's interesting you mention him playing villains after this because you're right on the money. But it's interesting because he's not necessarily a villain in this movie. In this movie, no. I mean, he... He just has such a disturbing presence that... He has, and he, he, I think he ultimately has a negative effect on Ashley Judd, but it's not like he's trying to be evil. Like, fucking Harry Connick Jr. is much more of a villain in this movie than than Michael Shannon is. And he's completely sane. Yeah. I mean, my, I mean Michael, Shan- Michael Shannon just comes across as, as like, mentally unwell. You well, know? yeah. Which, and- I, which I think is, I think it's good that they didn't try to make him villainous because there is such a stereotype of, like, insane villains you know that like madness and mental instability leads to leads to villainy i appreciated that they didn't try to make michael shannon the villain even though he has uh, an overall negative effect on ashley judd madness in horror movies is so often terribly done yeah you just get the insane serial killer the crazed lunatic and it's it's very rare that you get such a real portrait of mental illness. Well, yeah, most of the um, time in horror movies when you're dealing with, like, mental illness, you're dealing with, like, psychopathy. Mm-hmm. And and Michael Shannon's character is not a psychopath in this movie. He's just uh, probably a paranoid schizophrenic, you know, which is uh, uh, a pretty horrible existence i think it's it's one of the things that like to be a schizophrenic i think would it would be one of the truly like most tragic existences that you can have just like not not even being able to trust your own minds i i think that that is part of what makes this movie a horror movie is not knowing who is crazy and who isn't and like what is real and what isn't like the unknown is terrifying yeah I think this movie is one of the few movies that hits that mark so perfectly. I would compare it in a lot of ways to Repulsion. Yeah. um, Where, like, the mental illness is very real, but it's not caricatured in any way. Right. And And similar to Repulsion, it all takes place in, like, an isolated single location. It's neat, too, because, like, to to kind of uh, further, like, expound on that point um, about, like, his schizophrenia, like, there are, from what small amount of information i i have like and and understand about it which again is very small but i do i do believe like you can like be diagnosed with schizophrenia and like it can be like at lesser stages like relatively treatable and like you can be like a like a a, a functioning member of society just just like just like any sort of mental illness there's high you know there's high functioning and and low Mm -hmm. functioning like there are plenty of of people who live you know perfectly you know normal for the most part normal lives as high functioning schizophrenics yeah. but uh i i think that i i guess in this case i was referring to people like michael shannon's character in this that are completely incapable of well, functioning because of their their delusions what i like about it is like he starts out like relatively functional like he looks 
like he he seems to act fairly normal like he's avoiding like booze and whatnot like he has some strange quirks about his personality but he all he some seems like entirely functional and probably given if his character is paranoid schizophrenic and not actually you know being besieged by some sort of conspiracy then if he was to like be in a better scenario and like have the proper help like sought out for him, like he could probably still be a regularly functioning member of society. Like he then, which really keys into like the believability and authenticity yeah. of his written character. Like I think that in better circumstances, if his character was that and not besieged, he could have been well taken care of and like done all right. Like which well, is cool, which is really cool to me. Well, I think what what really set the character off was he mentions that he was in the Gulf War. And, you know, the things he experienced there and the horrible atrocities he saw kind of triggered that latent, you know, cognitive problems caused him to be discharged, to be hospitalized and all that stuff for it. And, uh, you know, that's that's a real thing. You know, Gulf War syndrome was and still is a huge deal upon people who were fighting in that war, you know, like 40 to 60,000 plus people experience, you know, PTSD, chronic fatigue, uh, mental issues similar to what Michael Shannon ex- is experiencing because of the Gulf War. Um, so it really adds a tragic bit to it because there there is that factor of, you know, he probably would have been fine if he hadn't had this experience in the war and that and kind even of then, like after that been better treated afterwards well if he is a schizophrenic like schizophrenia is a genetic disorder what he dealt with in the gulf war and ptsd could very well have uh exacerbated that and made it manifest earlier and and like more intensely in his life but if he was genetically predisposed to it it is it, you know but it, it could have easily stayed laden and, you know, the the events and stress is what triggered it, you know? Yeah, that's what I just so, said. Yep. He is still predisposed, yes, that is correct. What I'm I'm just saying that, you know, it it's not necessarily yeah. true that, like, it would have actually affected him if not for things like this. You know, like, just because you have a family history of it doesn't mean you're automatically going to be schizophrenic, you know? Well, well, no, but if you are, like, but schizophrenia is genetic. Right. If he does suffer from schizophrenia, that means that it was something that was in him all along and that the events might have brought it out, but it still would have manifested at some point in his life, maybe to lesser degrees or much later in his life than it did, but it would have at some point been an issue for him regardless of whether it was as intense or not that's all i'm saying but i i i agree with you that it makes his character much more of a tragic figure i think he and ashley judd are both pretty tragic figures because they both have their own fair share of trauma and problems interacting with society that draws them together and just uh, is is a really you know toxic feedback loop that just like fuels their own problems until it just snowballs into like full-blown insanity um and i think that that is a very tragic thing like like i said michael shannon's not a villain um you know it but what what happens to them is sad 
Yeah, and it's disturbing, you know, more than yes. anything. Yeah. It's it's a unique kind of horror where we're we're scared for the characters a lot and what they're going to end up doing to themselves in a lot of ways. Well, they're largely yeah. sympathetic, you know? absolutely. And like, well, it's scary too because it feels real. You know, it it's something that does happen to people and that you know can happen to anybody you know oh for um, sure with, you know, and you and you'd never know until it was happening so it's it is that that very real kind of horror where it's like oh my god i i hope that i never turn out like this you know right but you could yeah like it's it's cool it really gets at like the root of the word sympathy which is i suffer with you yeah and and mm-hmm. we we do as as audience members like we we feel the pain right along with them i guess as they experience it which really really brings us into to to be concerned and care for the characters and really really just hate the things that happens to them and yeah really hold that tension nicely. yeah yeah i'm curious how close the adaptation is is to the to the stage play yeah that's a good question i i actually have never seen the stage play i know they were both written by tracy lutz so it's probably it's probably fairly close i i guess i'm just wondering how much of the dialogue is direct because the film does play out so much like a stage play that I feel like you could probably, you know, just take take a lot of the dialogue directly and just put it in and add camera directions and stuff. Speaking of camera directions, I think we should talk a little bit about the the visual style of the film um, and some of the editing choices yeah. and and uh, just the general aesthetic because that's where most of my problems came in and I, and I yeah I know you you agree with me too Cleve it's a film from 2006 yes. and we've we've said before I'm pretty sure on the show that the aughts are like one of the worst aesthetically dated decades for film i think especially the early to mid aughts yeah early digital Oof. there's it's it's some, something about a combination of that early digital and the first like over usage of like shaky cam and handheld camera which i don't think is overall a problem i think there's there's plenty of ways to do it right but it's just like there's there's something about like the aesthetic of films from the early to mid 2000s that i just don't think has aged well at all and i think the beginning of this film suffers from that for me by the end i i was very visually on board but that's because in the end, the setting becomes so stylized, and at that point, when they're sort of, like, in the throes of their madness, like, the the really, like, loose and improvisational camera movement, and the, and the weird sort of frenetic editing, uh, and the jump cuts and stuff, that worked for me by that point. My problem is, is that all of that stylistic stuff, in terms of camera movement and editing is also there at the beginning before either of them have really started to uh, go crazy and i didn't understand it while i was while i was watching it at the time it it, it stood out for me in a in a jarring way right the I, cinematography for me like it doesn't have the same arc that the characters do it starts out crazy right, and yeah, we yeah, don't yeah. we don't like we don't get to 
and you know because it's the lens we're viewing it through we start crazy and and by the end of it we match them as opposed to sort of getting the opportunity to to be crazy with or to, 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 to succumb lose, to the craziness yeah, yeah, with yeah. them i agree it was uh, it was mostly the jump cuts in, for me in a lot of ways i i i would compare it to in a weird way mother you know which is another film i did which not is like. our first movie the first movie we talked about on the podcast but it in similarly you know has such a enhanced uh stylistic feel that you're along for the ride and in a similar way i feel like the feeling of this movie is from the beginning is so off kilter that it feels voyeuristic at times uh which plays into the themes of surveillance and additionally like you never feel comfortable in what you're seeing uh yeah i i agree and i i still think that it would have been more effective had they lulled me into a false sense of security in the beginning before i know that anything is wrong and then they start making me feel uncomfortable with the characters i think that would have for like me as a viewer would have made the emotional journey of the film all that much more successful rather than starting me off uncomfortable and having me notice things that I don't like about the editing and and the camera movement and stuff like that, and then building me into it's like, oh, okay, now I see why they're doing that. I think that it would have been much more successful if, like you said, Cleveland, if there was an arc to it, just like there's an arc and to it's the It's an interesting still, point. Well, I, I agree. And I want to say even still, like, documentary style, like, through the whole thing. Like, I really like documentary style. I like shoulder mount shots. Um... Because it can make you feel more like you're in the room, uh, you know, head bob simulation, etc. Yeah. Like, like it's it's great, but at times it felt somewhat overbaked. Like there there are several sequences where a character is monologuing early on, and the camera keeps like like zooming in on punches. Yeah, the the little punch the little punch ins didn't work super well for me. The, otherwise, the handheld stuff was fine. I didn't mind the movement. Like you said, the documentary style, it especially because it's so dialogue heavy, it reminded me of like mumblecore films in a lot of ways. That it just stuff, it reminded the, me the of punch the punch-ins almost reminded me of uh, Cassavetes at times, especially you know with uh, you know a woman under the influence being so related to schizophrenia too. I'm sure oh, yeah, Friedkin was somewhat inspired by some of the stylistic trappings of that. Which I didn't mind too much. I I can understand the influence. the The one thing I'll say about the the camera not having the same arc is, I mostly I, the editing more I, than the camera. Yeah, I, I totally understand where you're coming from there. I think it worked to keep a distance from feeling in the shoes of that those characters' journey, but I don't think it was perfectly done at the same time. Um, I, I, I think it's good to make us not feel like we're going insane with them. Friedkin does a pretty good job of keeping a slight distance between that um, throughout the movie. Yeah. I find that interesting because like, I, I think that the most compelling part about like the writing, like as we've as we've already like fully dissected, is that we are sort of brought along with them. Like I think that that's the most effective thing about the. But there's always a distance there's, to it. There right. is a, there is a distance. I, I and the more you can close that gap, the less you can like 
you know, remind them of the framing and more just putting them in. There's, there's a distance, there's a distance, but also like we brought up uh, a few minutes ago is that there's, there's an aspect of sympathy of suffering along with the characters. And I, I think that the, the balance between distance and sympathy in in like the third half is good I, I i think that like you do suffer along with them without ever feeling like you have become them but it's i still think that there's that there's a way to in the first it's a of, fine line to balance i, I guess you know? okay all right i think i think i thought of a good way to sum this up for me is i think that in the in the first couple of acts, I I would have preferred the camera work and the editing to keep me at distance from the characters, but instead it put me at a distance from the film itself. In in the sense that I was consciously noting specific decisions they were making and being like, I don't know if that really works for me. I think a lot of that comes from just like me being somebody, all of us being people who, who view films with like a particularly critical eye because we have to, you know, because of mm-hmm. what we do. Um, so maybe, maybe somebody who was not so critical of film would not, would not pick up on that or, or have it bother yeah. them. But for me, it's I just like the scores would reflect differently it, though. It takes I, me, it takes me out of the film because I, it starts making me, question the the decisions of the filmmaker and like well why did you do that why wouldn't you do this instead but i think it's for reasons that like most people would recognize like i think that that most people like with the job i, I think would be reminded that they're watching this through a camera yeah like, more than that, anything like, it's just sure i think it's that 2000 syndrome yeah you know well, and i think because thing- i think that makes what's a minor problem feel more major um, just because it feels more dated. Yeah, no, that that could that could very well be, which I think is still, I think is still a perfectly valid criticism of films is is how they age and how they date. Because like truly, the best films, uh, no matter what decade they're from, still hold up really well in in modern day. Um, so I, I think that that's something you have to consider as a filmmaker when you're making a film is how timeless will this film be? That's a whole different discussion. I, I think that you're, you're right on the money though with about that fucking like early to mid 2000s aesthetic. And another thing I was going to mention is that like the, the little, the little punch-ins while people are talking, I can't see shit like that anymore without thinking of fucking like sitcoms like The Office and like Parks and Rec and like documentary style sitcoms where like somebody looks at the camera and they zoom in. Yeah, it's it's a but weird like, thing because shows, this preceded that in a lot of right, ways. Right, 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 right. Which is which is a good which is a good mm-hmm. distinction to make is that at the time that had less of a, a stigma, a contextual, a, a contextual base. association. Um, Even but, then, like one punch in is fine, but like three punch-ins like in like only a punch few in, sentences punch of a in, monologue punch in, yeah. like that's that's where it got me because again i don't i like i like that style but just doing like again and again and again and it's like ah stop zooming i get it like ah like you know and it's it just i keep being yeah again again i think i think it was inspired by cassavetes in a lot of ways cassavetes uses punch-ins and zooms very liberally like that that no that's you know? very true and i don't mind it personally if you're not used to that style of filmmaking i, I it, could see it 
well, no, being a bother. It's textual I, I also. It, yeah. Like if if it's a, a campier film or like uh you know a, a movie where I'm I'm not really supposed to it, being being in the film isn't the point of the film. It's fine. Like you know if I'm gonna watch a you know, a wackier, like, RoboCop-style film or you know, even, like, an 80s kind of saccharine horror film, I wouldn't mind it there. Like, I think I think even then, like, multiple punches in a... If it's, like, something that heavily stylized, I think would, would fit in something a little bit, like, campier and more intentionally artificial. My issue is that, like, that style, like, documentary-style filmmaking is often used to create a sense of genuine or a sense of uh, like authenticity. Kind of fly on the wall. Exactly. It's used to to create a sense of authenticity. So when you have it being sort of used artificially, like authenticity being used artificially is, is very tricky. And like you were saying earlier, Ben, it's a fine line to walk. And I think that this film suffers on that front. Yeah, I think it it is very dependent on context. Uh, In Cassavetti's stuff, it doesn't bother me. In, like, mumblecore films, it doesn't bother me. Something about in in this setting, it's just because I don't think I'm Mostly in the first act, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I I said, once once they go full tilt into the end of the film, which I think we should get into here in a minute, um, once they go full tilt into that, all of that stuff just, I think, further heightens the mindset of the characters. And at that point, I'm totally sold. It's just when there's, like, the really mundane stuff happening at the beginning, and there's, like, seemingly unmotivated jump cuts and, like, weird punch-ins on on moments of dialogue that seemingly don't deserve that import. It's stuff like that that it just it takes me out of it in in a sort of uncomfortable way. But let let's talk about that third act a little bit because uh, I think that that is that is the point where the film like truly won me over overall for for a lot of the, like the first half of the movie I was like. I don't know how I feel about this. Like I'm really on board with the characterization and the dialogue, but I don't know if I like the style. And then we get into that third act. and I'm like, Oh, okay. This is fucking awesome. This is, great. yeah. I mean, the third act is what stuck with me. Yeah, you know, makes, it's it why I picked this movie. Yeah, it makes the film. Um, I, the last time I saw this movie was back in high school, I think. And, uh, I've shown it to a few people since then. The third act is always what catches people because it is so stunning. Covering the walls with aluminum foil and, uh, putting up those, uh, bug lanterns is so evocative. Yeah. Just like they've, they've sealed themselves inside their tinfoil hat, like quite. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, It's it's great. It works so well with the conspiracy ideas. I, I was reading some behind the scenes stuff and, uh, apparently they had a lot of problems shooting in the aluminum foil room like that because everything was so reflective, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I believe that. I I applaud them I for doing it successfully. It, how long it took them to just build that fucking set to just like cover everything with plastic and foil? That must have probably taken a day or two in and of itself. Yeah. See, what I'm I'm thinking about too is how you do it in the stage play. You'd have to have like the pre like taped together like tinfoil stuff and just they, like pull it up like in the middle of a. You know, yeah, the they probably sequel. almost certainly yeah have something like that. Or it's gonna be have, a loud scene transition. Or just have like different or just have <laughs> different like walls. different walls and just like wheel out different. Yeah, that that's, that's what you'd almost have to do. So it's I not think like that's probably like it doesn't go dark do. and then the stage just sounds really crinkly for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, 
but yeah, that at the beginning of that sequence is when the doctor shows up, and I, I think he's he's an interesting character too, because all we've been told about him up to this point is that like he's an evil government scientist who's like using soldiers as his guinea pigs and like trying to build like this bioweapon or whatever of like infecting people with like bugs that they didn't spread to other people and shit like that. But it's like he comes in and he doesn't give very much information about himself, but he's just like, I know uh, Michael Shannon, like, he hasn't had his medicine for a while, like, he's a paranoid schizophrenic. There's that that weird aspect where he does just, like, hit the crack pipe. Um, a government scientist probably wouldn't do that, but also, like, a doctor probably well, would not do that. Well, that's the interesting well, thing to it. You know, that, you know, get up to that sort of yeah, thing. That's so the interest, kind of believable. The interesting thing about it to me is by having him hit the crack pipe like that, it puts his authenticity into question, right? You know, exactly. in a big way. Well, like it's cool because, like, like I mean, look at Timothy Leary, right? Like that. It's a it's a thing that happens, like with the, sure, with, sure, with like sure. doctors and scientists, which is which is fun. Timothy Leary is, you know, a renowned scientist, but he wasn't like uh, a licensed doctor in the same way. You know, well, no, but he was a career professional. Like, yes, yes, but licensed doctor his own wares, like. <laughs> right? But he was experimenting with psychedelics and yeah. like unlocking like different parts of consciousness and shit like that. Mm-hmm. He wasn't just like smoking crack with crazy yeah. people in dingy and, hotel rooms. Yeah, and, and like his first experience with LSD, the first experience with LSD was accidental. And that's his, you know, like he he accidentally got some of it right. on him and had a great bike ride back home. Like <laughs> he didn't stop there, which is you know part of the fun. So right. yeah, that, that's all I'm getting at. It's like. It is the believability is still there, but it's sure, also really but it, unique. It, it, it does it, it does put put his authenticity, especially as uh, you know Michael Shannon's psychiatric doctor. You know you you would assume he's that that stable base. You right, know, exactly. and by having him smoke a crack pipe, you're like, how stable is he really? Which I think is a great effect. Yeah, because he also like expresses some regret about how he's handled Michael Shannon. Yeah as well so you can yeah you can see that that even he's open to like not being as good at his job as he could I, be yeah and... i i just love how ambiguous that character is because it's like you can be fairly certain that he has been medically treating michael shannon to some extent but to what extent and in what context is left totally ambiguous. Yeah. Does he have and regret over like letting Michael Shannon like he, escape as his project or does he have regret over like not taking care of him properly? Right. Is he, is he a sinister figure or is, or is he uh, a, a caring figure? You it's, know? it's weird too, because it seems like he's playing up the, the delusions as well. And part of that, you know, is him understanding, you know, severity of the situation. Well, yeah, but at the same time, it makes it feel more authentic to the characters. Right. He's having that long conversation with Ashley Judd, and when he realizes that she's sort of like broken down too, he starts telling her that, like, to try to convince her to like let Michael Shannon go. It's like, it's like, well, I can take him back to, to the base or whatever, and we'll remove the bugs from his body. You know, it'll be a, a perfectly standard operation, but it's like, is he telling her that earnestly or is he 
lying to her, playing into her delusions to get her to trust him more, which it's likely that one, but even so, it is never explicitly stated. Yeah, I'd be really curious to know, like, what the the professional standard is for, or, like, the protocol is for taking care and looking after someone who is having a schizophrenic outbreak. Like, how much do are you supposed to, like, play into their fantasy to kind of help cushion them, or do you, like, straight up try and break their fantasy which could be yeah, very that, unhealthy that I have i'd no be really idea. curious to know like i think i think that's that's i mean whatever the standard is smoking a crack pipe <laughs> then saying you'll you'll remove the bugs right does yeah. not seem like the correct protocol that does correct. Seem wrong. I, I, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're absolutely right um and and you know after that we get like the only like truly violent moment in the movie where Michael Shannon finally comes out of the bathroom and he's oh, naked and he he starts trying to tell Ashley Judd that the doctor is like an android. Yeah. And is like he's like I'll show you and he just takes a knife and he just like stabs the fucking shit out of him, just murders him and it's really graphic and bloody and he's like digging around in his intestines. He's like it's not blood, it's lubricant. See and he's like rubbing it on Ashley Judd and his own face and on his and own face like tasting yeah. it even. He's like, he's like, you see, you see, it's not blood, it's lubricant, it's fake blood, it's fake blood. And, and it's just like, nah, you, you just, I mean, they don't show us, but it's like, nah, you just murdered that dude. And then <laughs> like, they go on a big rant for about 10 minutes between the two of them, uh, kind of justifying everything and well, furthering the conspiracy in their head. And this is like the climactic you know, probably my dialogue of the movie. Of the movie. Yeah. And I think it's fantastic. It's, it's mostly, it's really mostly a monologue from Ashley Judd. Like Michael Shannon is participating, but he's mostly like egging her on in, in the extent that like, he's letting her like put the pieces together. He's like, yeah. And why would they do that? And then like, she just kind of rambles on. Uh, it's, it's very much like a, a monologue from her. And I think it's, it's awesome because it's like, that's when their personalities have like sort of fully fused. And she is, she is like completely a band, like, uh, given herself up to the conspiracy and like watching her logic and the way she puts it together is like watching those fucking conspiracy theory, YouTube videos yes. where it's like, you see the path that they're taking to like reach these conclusions, but it's, it's just like a series of, uh, like logical missteps, bigger stretches, yeah, you know, right. bigger reaches I definitely that, that to, leave, yeah. that leave ultimately more, more questions and, and answers. The interesting thing is I've shown this movie to a few people over the years. There's a few times where like I've shown this to people and like that scene has elicited laughter from people because it is so absurd. Oh, yeah. And I think part of it is because we're so distanced from the reality of that situation. Um, that it can be funny to or people, to be, yeah. you know, I liked it in particular. Cause like, I, I love wacky conspiracy theories, like for fun, like, you know, and to, to giggle at, but like, it's, it's neat. Cause it starts out with like, like very legitimate. He, Shannon starts out with very legitimate and proven things like MK ultra, which is like government documented. Like right. that happened, you know, like a small branch of the CIA did do tests on college students. Like, you know, yeah. what came of it? They, they burned most of the records. We don't know who's to say, but like, Everything past that is just fucking nutso town, and it's it's fun to me because like you could you could fucking Wikipedia that like that's that's well documented. And again, like most of the shitty YouTube conspiracy videos and stuff, it starts out with something that's like 
that like the government did that's probably legitimately bad and then it very quickly spins off into speculation and it yeah. doesn't know yeah. when yeah. to most of, they, they mention like the tuskegee syphilis uh yeah. testing and stuff most most of those like really diehard conspiracy theorists are obviously not proponents of Occam's razor at all because like <laughs> they always choose the the things that have the most variables rather than the least like things that bring up the most questions rather than the least and they just present it as like ironclad fact right and then they're on to the next one before right they they you can really and track then, down and, then and it, research it allows the them because they believe one thing it allows them to make a further leap and then a further leap. And it's just like, it's just like a, a complete downward spiral. Um, and, and we get to watch that happen to Ashley Judd in real time. And it's great talking about kooky shit that like they implanted Michael Shannon with like drones that would activate the bugs, but they implanted like the queen bug in her. And that's why the bugs didn't show up until after the first time they had sex because he transferred the the nano drones to her that activated the the queen bug in her and then they both became infested and it's just yeah it goes whacked down it's just absolute nonsense the like sound of the helicopters outside is just like building and building it's like they're they're the the government is finally coming um and it and it ends with them setting themselves on fire good old emulation like you do (laughs) (laughs) um and then yeah we we see outside from the hotel room that there's there's nothing out there you know i do like that the very last thing they say to each other before before they set themselves on fire is i love you so much even at the end at least (laughs) at at least they felt at least they felt love well at least they felt that companionship one thing that i i love is i think the key moment to unpacking that is earlier in the movie I think right after they have sex, Ashley Judd asks uh, Michael Shannon's character why he doesn't like being with women or having relationships. Yeah, because he mentions earlier and, that he's sort of given up on that, that he hasn't been with a woman in, in several years. And he mentions this idea of having like something in the core of you, something pure, uncorrupted by others and untouched by others. Relationships and things like that can infect that. And in a lot of ways, that's what we see. Oh yeah, that's to, absolutely in the happens. movie. You know, yeah, he talks directly. about he talks about like somebody else's personality, like invading yours and corrupting like your your pure core self. Um, and that is that's exactly what they do to each other. They invade each other, and it's I, I think that thematically that is addressed really well. And it can only really end with with their destruction by the end. Um, so I, I've, I found I found the ending uh, to be pretty satisfying, tragic but satisfying. Yeah, it's not too often you come across like characters in uh, in narrative who are um, like borderline asexual as well, or just like asexual characters like aren't that often like portrayed. And I. I find that. Yeah, I think they even they even really mentioned that they just had sex the one time. That like mm-hmm. even after that they've they've been living together but they haven't been sleeping together or anything. It was just like the one experience that sort of like kickstarted the the whole thing. 
And uh, we don't have to get into it, but that is one of the weirdest sex scenes I've ever seen in oh, the yeah, movie when weird, they bang. It's it's like, I, I think weird in a good way because it's like it's sensual, but at the same time, like really uncomfortable. Yeah, There's a lot of yeah. Michael Shannon's face, it's and not, it's yeah, it's, it's not, not erotic it's, really no, at all. It's, you know, sen- like it's sensual, but it's not. But erotic, like everyone yeah. is so wet and sweaty yeah. and. Like and it's, not it's, in a good way. <laughs> it's gritty in a way. And that is and that is, you know, sort of like the catalyzing incident that like it mm-hmm. Michael Shannon, you know, is at that point relatively stable. Like he's a little weird, but he, you know, he's functional and, and same with Ashley Judd. It's like that when they when they literally invade each other that like they've also in a way, you know, he has planted quote unquote drones inside her. You know, he has infected her with his madness and she is through her own insecurities fueling his. So it's it's just like a really negative feedback loop. It's it's really well done. I'm I'm I'd be very curious to see the stage play. Um I'm not usually one for the theater, but uh I would check this one out. Um just out of curiosity. I feel like there's probably somewhere online where you can watch like a yeah. recording of it. I would definitely recommend watching Killer Joe as well. It came out four or five years after this, um, but it's very much the same gritty, grimy aesthetic of this movie taken a step further. It's Friedkin and Letts again, but it's more of a black comedy. It has Matthew Matthew McConaughey in it, um, Juno Temple. It really takes kind of those core, grimy Oklahoma aesthetics and just pushes it even further. Word. Uh, you want to rate? Yeah, I think we're good to rate. Uh, why don't you start, Ben? Okay. Um, well, I think this movie is a very interesting movie. And while there's some stylistic choices that have dated a little poorly, um, I think overall the themes and ideas presented in this movie are really strong. The portrayal of madness in this movie uh, hits that perfect point of representation that you don't see in many horror movies and i think it's very disturbing you know we we're scared for the characters you know just as scared as we are by the characters a lot of the time if not more which i i think is such an interesting thing in horror movies that i don't feel like i see very often the acting is incredible Ashley Judd is awesome. Michael Shannon is awesome. Even Harry Connick Jr. as the abusive ex-boyfriend, I think, does a fantastic job. Um, Overall, I think this is a really solid movie. Interesting enough that I would recommend it to check out if you like Friedkin or you like kind of off-the-wall disturbing horror movies. Yeah, so I'm going to give it a four and a half out of five. I, I think it's a really strong movie. Incredible acting. Incredible narrative, wonderful dialogue, great set dressing as well. Like, there are so many great things about this movie. And uh, and also, like, some of my favorite subject matter. As I said, I love conspiracy. It's it's so much fun to just, like, hop down some sort of batshit rabbit hole and to be, you know, just or to be dragged down in that sort of rabbit hole in this case. And, and you know, themes of madness and whatnot. Like, it, this film does such a good job with all of those things. Or at least the, the core narrative does uh, in ways that would make me think that the, the stage play is... is fantastic like i would i would definitely like be very keen to see it the biggest things that really 
that, that bothered me about the film, like I said, was like the, the, the first two acts with the cinematography. And also I didn't really get into it as much, but the, the editing sort of plays its hand a little early with like some of the like shots of the fan and the helicopter stuff before the characters are experiencing that. So it's sort of like a, I, I felt like a, you know, a magician sort of like kind of telling you like what, what the, mag- the magic trick they're about to perform is. And it, it had me sort of questioning the beginning of the film and a little sad to see that like included in, in like what could have been like something so much closer to a perfect adaptation. So I'm going to say uh, for me, it was uh, three pods. I, I really liked a lot of aspects of it, but it's always hard for me when I see something that I could have like loved that much more. And I, I feel could have, could have really been brought home suffer from something like like that and keep it from being like the 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 movie it even could have been for for me so i'll uh yeah i'll say i'll say three pots i'll say three pots but it's a it's a strong three it's a strong three yeah i i thought that it was overall a, a pretty solid film i did have some some problems with it and it it led me to focus a little too heavily on like the filmmaking decisions rather than focusing on the the characters in the story in a way that I found kind of disappointing, especially considering the director. Yeah, it, no, that's very true. And and just like the the aesthetic, I just thought had not aged well, at least in the first couple of acts, uh, including the the cinematography and and the editing stuff that you've brought up already. Uh, overall, though, I thought narratively it was quite strong. Uh, it had it had really good thematic development. The characters were uh, intriguing and layered and sympathetic. The acting is stellar. Great performances from Ashley Judd and um, Michael Shannon. Um, and and it really won me over hard in that third act. Uh, I would say that if you're not sold in the beginning, if you watch this movie, like stick around till the end. It's worth it. Um, but I, I do I do think that it kind of stumbles a bit out of the gate at the beginning and, and didn't really didn't really capture me as early as I would have liked. So I'm going to give it a three and a half out of five, which will give it an average of three point seven out of five pods. Um, yeah, it's if, if your only exposure to William Friedkin is stuff like The Exorcist and The French Connection, uh, this is probably going to be a bit of a, a weird a weird one, but. I would I would overall recommend it. I would definitely I would say it's worth checking out, um, especially if you're a fan of like stage plays and like really dialogue heavy narratives. A lot of just people talking uh, to each other. It does that really well, man. Like the the writing is the writing is tight. Three point seven out of five pods for Bug. So uh, this movie's all about conspiracy. So I I have a mini segment for us with this movie. Um, I was looking online and I found an article that has conspiracy theories and theories about the plot of this movie. Oh God, conspiracy <laughs> about a movie about conspiracy. Fuck yeah, me. love it. Love so it. this is by the writer uh, Films for Weirdos with Wild Hearts and Soaring Souls. That's their 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 username. So I'm going to... It's their username? Yeah. That's ridiculous. It's a hell of a username. <laughs> so I'm going to give you a couple of these theories, and they have several paragraphs about each one of these, but... The first one is Peter, uh, Michael Shannon's character, equals Lloyd, the, the kid that disappeared. <laughs> Wait, what? 
<laughs> that he Peter has a full explained backstory. And the So in the play, oh, okay. Agnes is forty four years old. She lost her son Lloyd ten years previous in the grocery store when he was six. This would make Lloyd about sixteen during the film's time frame. Surely Michael Shannon's character looks older than 16, while Judd's character yeah. looks more like 34 than 44. Still, there are several instances in this film where I strongly felt Peter could have been Agnes's son, Lloyd. That's no. a big yikes for me. <laughs> no. Big yikes. No. First, there is no explanation as to how slash why Peter wandered to that part of Oklahoma. Oddly, R.C. quote-unquote introduces Peter to Agnes, uh, supposedly by mere chance. But what if Peter was tracking his birth parents? If he indeed was kidnapped and tested upon by various governmental agencies, perhaps he somehow learned the process where at least one of his biological parents resided. Maybe he was simply looking for answers as to why all these bad things happened to him. This would explain why he's absent in the scene where R.C. and Agnes party, almost implying that he was snooping around the house, as well as why he pulls out Lloyd's toys. Big note. Yeah, so then he, knowing that Ashley Judd was his mom, he's just like, yeah, I guess I'll fuck my mom. Yeah, awful. Awful. A 16-year-old kid looked like a 30-something Michael Shannon. Yeah, I only have one thing to say to that, and that is Occam's Razor. Yep. Yes, so the next one is Peter as Agnes's delusion. In the film's cover photo, we see Michael Shannon's face hidden within Judd's. This goes along with the theory cool. many Our hold... It's not in the movie. Neat. Uh, the theory many hold that perhaps Peter was all a delusion to Agnes. Except he interacts with or people. Or perhaps Peter's character was part of her psyche, like a split personality. I could I could buy that if he didn't interact with any of the other characters, but there are a couple of scenes where she's not she's there. She's not there and Michael Shannon is interacting directly with Harry Connick Jr. So And referring I'm, to him as Peter and saying I forgot your name and shit. I'm gonna like, yeah, I'm gonna go at, <laughs> like no. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say that one's just absolute bunk as well. There's plenty of ambiguous, like, legitimate conspiracy things, like, you could get it, that we've already it's, gotten to about this movie. It's like, more plausible you... to believe that Peter was part of Agnes's split personality. No. Although the film never gives <laughs> clues that men Agnes's mental faculties are uh, that deteriorated. Still, there are certain scenes that make us question Agnes's state of mind. In the beginning, we see Agnes close up and witness her reactions to the phone ringing. In a mild state of paranoia, she says something like, Damn you, Jerry, I could get the cops after you. While a moment later, she's laughing at herself, as if it can't possibly be Jerry. What? In the scene with when her and R.C. party, one minute Aggie is up at the freezer, and the next she is on the couch laughing, presumably way more wasted. It's these shots that don't show us happenings in between that might be clues for us in figuring out Agnes's state of mind. So jump cuts are clues now? <laughs> One minute she's sure it was Jerry calling, calm yet bold in her prediction. Yet another minute she's vulnerably uncertain. No. no. <laughs> Once again, Occam's Razor. Okay, so this one's called Dr. Sweet. If Dr. Sweet uh, wasn't a delusion, he certainly wasn't a doctor. Even in 1991, 
doctors and psychiatrists don't go out looking for their patients. And they don't generally care about the welfare, their welfare outside the office. What? I don't think that's true. I think doctors are people too. I last time I checked, his smoking one, whatever but... in the pipe did not signify his gaining Agnes's trust, in my opinion, as he still tells her he sees the bugs too. We've been over that. Yeah. Also, a point of gaining trust, but whatever. When someone is having a delusion or is in psychosis, you're not supposed to play along with their delusion, driving them further into it. Obviously, you're not supposed to say they're wrong and persecute them either, but there are other ways of handling the situation. Okay. I don't think that proves that he's not a doctor. He's probably, a, he might be a bad doctor, which we have addressed. Yeah, we unpacked that, yeah. <laughs> we unpacked that. I had a theory that maybe Dr. Sweet and Jerry were the same person. Jerry mentions having a sweet tooth. Although this would only work as part of Peter's or Agnes's delusion. Right, because they both know who who uh, Jerry is. And Michael Shannon recognizes Dr. Sweet. So that one's maybe the most plausible out of all of these, but I still think it's... Uh... This is a great example, though, of what we were talking about earlier. Like with, oh, a, with yeah. the conspiracy theorists like trying to tie red strings to, to make points and they just get tangled up in the strings. Yeah, man. Totally. Right. Yeah. Okay, so there's one more. There's one more. So our, this one's called R.C., who's uh, Agnes's friend. R.C. is another character I was suspicious of. While many claimed R.C. was the quote-unquote reality check in the situation, I found her behavior strange as well. Why was Peter in a lesbian bar? And if this was his first time in the area, how did R.C. know him? And if she didn't, what made her immediately trust him and consider him harmless? First off, actually, that brings up, uh, to, to answer the why was Peter in a lesbian bar, that actually is a cool character trait aspect. Like, he, he would go to a place like that because being asexual and whatnot, he would probably feel somewhat more comfortable there. Um, right, he's not there trying to pick up women, and he knows that none of the women there are going to be interested in him because he's because they're gay. Yeah, that's something I hadn't thought about that fits well into his character, and also answers why that's a dumb question. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> when she makes a phone call during their party, she dials a number and literally starts talking as if the line didn't even ring, or better yet, she was faking the phone call as an excuse to leave. For those that felt the phone ringing or not ringing was key to the film's plot, what if the phone wasn't working at all? That means R.C. was playing into Aggie's delusion as well, not to mention leaving Agnes alone with Peter, a man she supposedly just met. Yeah, that's a reach, too. <laughs> reach and a half. This person has done a bad job of convincing me of any of these theories. Yeah, so those were the main conspiracies they had, and man, are they a stretch. Fantastic. They're all garbage, uh, which I think is a great transition into a word from our sponsor this week. Oh, yeah, so uh, this one is brought to you by um, uh, Catkins Conspiracy String. Looking for a red string to tie your conspiracies together? Seek no further than Catkins Conspiracy String. We got your yarn so you can spin yours. Thank you. Thanks, Catkins. It's all over my apartment now. Just the way I like it. Yeah, okay, so that will bring us to the end of this week's episode. Next week, 
I'm not going to tell you what we're doing because it's going to be a surprise. <gasps> it's a very special, exciting episode that we have coming next week. And um, that's all I'm going to say. So if you like surprises, tune in next week. It's a conspiracy. Somewhere in the video we've hinted towards it, but you have to unpack the whole thing and maybe rewind it twice to hear all of it. And then you'll know what we're playing. Yeah, next maybe week. we've maybe we've been leaving you clues this whole time. So you just want to warp. Um, if you like the show, if if you like the show, uh, leave us a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. Hit those five stars. Leave us a nice comment. Share an episode with your friends. Bring us more people so that we may podify them. That we may mm. gently spit our nice thoughts and uh, opinions deeply <laughs> into their ear holes. Um, uh, follow us on Twitter at uh, podpeoplepod. Uh, we're still running the bracket. I'd actually, well, are we at this at point? At this point, we're it's probably, probably, it's probably done. done. Yeah. Um, we'll have an update on that next time, maybe. If you follow us on Twitter, you'd already know by now. Uh, so do that. Um, follow us on Letterboxd if you want to see a list of all the films we've talked about on the show. Uh, our average ratings, links to those episodes, letterboxd.com slash podpeoplepod. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Mr. Van Awesome for random shit. I don't know. I'm really glad you brought up the uh, the point about how we infect people with their pod stuff because I uh, I wanted to uh, get a, a shout out there for my new uh, band, uh, Cleveland Mosier and the Spitting Earholes. Uh, yeah, we're really we're really rocking it, and we're it's we, we've got some good bops. You said it was uh, pirate punk, right? Oh yeah, yeah, pirate punk. Uh, uh, we, we call it Arvant Guard. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, uh, okay, but for real though, uh, you can find me um, uh, primarily on my art station under Cleveland Mosier. And you can also find uh, find some cool tweets. We're uh, rocking out for uh, It Stares Back under Light Arc Studios, our, our company account. Um, and, uh, yeah, keep your ears to the rails. We got that demo coming soon. It looks like we're going to be at, uh, ECGC, East Coast Game Con in Raleigh from April 16th to 18th. We're going to have a booth and we're going to be demoing it stairs back. So y'all better come out and support. Uh, it's going to be a hell of a time. Yeah. If you're, uh, if you're in the area, um, and you, uh, you like video games and... And spookies. And spookies. Uh, yeah, pick up a ticket for uh, East Coast Games Con. I don't think they're too terribly expensive. Um, and come find us. If you come to our booth and you mention that you heard this uh, on this episode, that you listened to the show, we'll give you something special. Absolutely, yeah. we'll, we'll We'll figure it out. Um, oh, most definitely. So, yeah, uh, if you like video games and you're in the uh, Raleigh, North Carolina area, check out ECGC. Yep, and uh, I'm at Mr. Sheets on Twitter. Can you smell what The Rock is cooking? I can. All right. Well, thank you, as always, for listening. And uh, check back with us next week for a very special surprise episode. Uh, and until next time, keep your bug spray handy. You never know who might be putting eggs in your teeth. Bye.